O Lord God, as we go through the Baptist essentials, God, I pray that we might understand what we believe in and why. God, I pray that this time will be a blessing to my fellow church members. It may be an opportunity to grow and challenge what they believe in and why, but also how to apply this. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going over Baptist essentials. So week one, we talked about what is the church. Week two, we talked about church membership. This week, we are going to be talking about church discipline. Now, you may be wondering, how is church discipline directly relevant to being a Baptist? And it's actually the natural flow of church membership. If we understand what the church is, and we understand that church membership is important, what do we do when a member is in sin, or if I could say, has gone rogue? So church discipline is the natural way that we deal with members who are in sin. Church discipline has also fallen on hard times. And what I mean by that is a lot of churches view church discipline as unloving and to be avoided at all costs. And a majority of churches no longer even practice it. And a lot of times it can be done wrong and in a hurtful way which is why churches almost just turn a blind eye. They won't say they won't practice it, but it may only be in an extreme extreme case where the pastor has done something bad. Otherwise, they'll turn a blind eye to all the members. And so the question to ask is, is God's love incompatible with church discipline? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. If we could have most people sit on this side, so it's just easier. (laughs) We're going to start in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, been, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there? whom his father does not discipline. A loving parent will discipline their child. As the proverb says, the parent who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. Here, the point being made is God disciplines those who are truly his sons. And on the flip side, that should get us to think, 
if we are not being disciplined by God when we are in a sin, we should question if we're really saved. If we are in sin for a long period and it's ongoing and we see no discipline, no way that the Lord is trying to correct us, we should wonder, am I even saved? So discipline is a loving act that a father does to his children, and we call God our father. In fact, I can continue to even say God loves us so much that he will not tolerate or he will not leave us in our sin. God loves us so much that he is willing to correct us because he loves us. And so it is because God performs discipline that the church likewise should discipline its members. In fact, it is a loving thing for God to discipline us. In the same way, it's a loving thing for a parent to discipline a child. And then in the same way, it is a loving thing when the church body disciplines its members. So now the natural question is, what is church discipline? I'm going to read two passages, go through them in that V, and you'll kind of see everything of what church discipline is. To sum up, before we begin, church discipline is when another Christian lovingly rebukes or corrects another Christian. Church discipline is when another Christian lovingly rebukes or corrects another Christian. We're going to go through two passages, Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to walk through both of these passages and point out some key points from the passages, and we're going to see the process of church discipline given to us. So let's begin in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So let me point out some key things that happen in this passage. First, this is when a brother or sister is in sin. And verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you 
in him alone. So first we get a basic principle. When church discipline starts, it is meant to stay as small as possible or as few people as need to know should know. Don't get anyone else involved. This isn't the time to say, we should be praying for this brother. Let me just tell you about everything, but let's pray. No, this is time to keep it as silent as possible because you don't want to be a gossiper or slander. As few people involved as necessary should be involved. If this person has sinned against a few brothers, just still keep it as quiet as possible. You don't want slander to go throughout the church or gossip. But what it says to begin with, that the one who has been sinned against is to go to the brother by himself and correct him. Essentially, go to the brother, explain what happened and what was actually sinful. This is the time to, as you say, the Bible says this, this is what you did. Do you understand what you did was wrong? This is time to be very direct, really open. But let me explain the purpose of it. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The purpose of church discipline is to correct your brother so that you may gain them back. It is to restore a brother that has fallen into sin so that they can be one with the body of Christ again. So, for example, when I discipline my little three-year-old girl, what I oftentimes say to her is that she has left the circle of blessing. And what I'm referring to is that there are certain commands and rules that she is instructed to follow, and when she starts disobeying what is instructed, she has now left the circle of blessing. So when she's disobedient, when she talks back, or any sin, she is now leaving the natural blessing that comes through following God's commandments and doing it his way. And when she starts trying to do it her own way, there will be, in some cases, natural consequences, and there's sometimes going to be discipline that happens. So the natural consequences are if she disobeys me when I say don't touch the hot stove, and she does it, that's then the natural consequence for her disobedience. But then she still has to deal with the correction that I give her. You disobeyed. I said this. You did that. So she has left the circle of blessing. So with church discipline, when someone is in sin, they are not obeying God's way and his order. And they have thus left the area where God can bless them. If an individual in a marriage starts breaking the marriage vow they have given, there's then consequences and they have now lost them the blessing that marriage naturally provides. So when someone is in sin, they are losing or they are leaving the natural blessings that come with obedience. And so what we seek to do when we do church discipline is to restore them. 
We call them to repentance so that we can again have great fellowship with this believer. And we're going to, um, on the inside of your notes, you'll see some of the reasons that we do it, um, of the why we should do it, to exhort, to warn. We're going to go over that a little bit more, and I'll explain that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, the purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother who is in sin. That is the purpose for which we're doing it. We want to see them back in the church. We want to see them living a holy life. Again, step one, you go to the brother in sin alone. Step two is where you take one or two other with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So in this case, the brother has not repented of their sin. They have not turned from it even after being corrected. And now it's time to get just a few more people involved. It may be someone who is aware of the situation. It could be a time where you seek out the pastors. Hey, we're dealing with this issue with this brother. Can you come with me and be a witness? And the purpose of this is rooted all the way back in the Old Testament of how to bring a charge against somebody. The purpose is to validate and to confirm what is happening and what the response of the member is. So you want to actually have it almost on record that this brother was corrected first by this person and then by this group of people so that when it gets brought to the church, it can easily be said, I corrected the brother and then I corrected the brother with the pastors. And so it's meant to have almost an accountability. We don't want almost a situation where there's like gossip or hearsay. Well, I did this, this, but it not be confirmed. We actually want the person who is in sin to be able to give an account or to be able to explain the situation. It could very well be a situation where it's like, no, you're misunderstanding the situation. That's not what's happening. And when you have multiple witnesses, they can cross-examine. So this is supposed to be an accountability for both sides of it. The person who is accused of the sin and the person who is doing the accusing. So it's meant to be an accountability step, such as what happens in the Old Testament. And so when you bring the witnesses and the person still does not repent, this is where it goes to the next step. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the situation arises where you have already bring witnesses and you have already brought it up with the two or three and it's not going anywhere. The person still refuses to repent. This is where typically what we see in our church is it get brought up in t- gets brought up in a church members meeting where it gets formally announced this brother is in sin and there's where a lot of discussion happened. What are the circumstances? Who has talked to this brother? How did it happen? What has been done? But most importantly, what are we going to do about it? And this is where our church 
calls for the members to actually confront this brother or sister, to actually go up to them and lovingly correct them. And it says, if the person refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What this means is treat them as if they are an unbeliever. This person who once claimed to be Christ, who claimed to be a Christian, we now don't take their words that, that they said they are Christian, we don't take it seriously anymore. We treat them like an unbeliever because they are acting like an unbeliever. And so what that means practically is this is the opportunity that you are then called to evangelize them, to correct them of their sin, and it's just giving them the gospel. That if you are in sin and you need to repent. So we treat them as an unbeliever who needs to be saved. Even if they continue to say, well, I'm a Christian, you say, your actions are not showing that you are a Christian. The church has now excommunicated you, and we will treat you as if you are an unbeliever. We will continue to pray for you. We will continue to evangelize you. But in some ways, there is now a formal discipline, and this would include preventing them from the Lord's Supper because we don't want any more judgment to come upon them. So this is where um, one of the Baptist distinctions on who takes the Lord's Supper is relevant. If the person is acting like an unbeliever, they will suffer the consequences and they will not be within the blessings of being able to even take the Lord's Supper. And so that's the basic steps of church discipline. One, first step is correct them um, by themselves, by yourself. Second is to take two or three witnesses. If they still don't repent, take it to the church. And if they don't repent when it's brought to the church, then treat them like an unbeliever. So that's Matthew 18. Do we have any questions on the process of Matthew 18. I'm going to move my podium just a little bit more balanced. <laughs> okay, any questions on Matthew 18? Okay, the next passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him be, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man for the destruction of his flesh over to Satan, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, for you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with the sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immorality of the world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would not need to even go out to the world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swinder, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, so purge the evil person from among you. So 1 Corinthians 5 is still dealing with church discipline. Although based on some of the context clues that we get, Paul has already tried correcting the church, probably in a previous letter or when he actually visited, visited the church, and is already a publicly known sin, and nothing has been done about it. It seems to be church-wide, the fact that he can write it in a letter saying, you guys are boasting over this. You're acting like it's actually a good thing. And so, 1 Corinthians, um, we can almost assume that it's already gone to the church and everyone's aware of it. And Paul cast out judgment on this person. So, let's actually discuss some of the whys on why we do church discipline. The first one, to expose sin. When sin goes unchallenged and unconfronted as an opportunity to grow and to fester, we can take this as an example of lying. If someone's caught in a small lie and they're not confronted, they may be willing to tell a bigger lie and it will keep on escalating. The same thing for stealing. It may start out with them stealing something small as a pen, and then it may go to the next level where they're willing to steal something of more value, like a phone, and then they may go even more. If unconfronted, the sin will have an opportunity to grow and to fester, and the purpose of confronting in church discipline is to expose the sin so that it gets dealt with. If it isn't exposed, it will continue to grow. Unrepented sin will continue to get worse and worse. So why do we do church discipline? To expose people who are in sin. Point number two, to warn them. In some cases, 
someone may not understand the consequences of their actions. We can almost consider this as like a new believer who is almost ignorant. If I do this, nothing bad will happen. But in fact, we are warning them. And it can be a warning in two ways. First, it's a warning for their soul that if they continue to go down this way, this can be, what we could say, like a damning sin. And what I mean by that is this sin can fester and grow more and more. This is kind of like what James talks about. And it can just grow more and more where the person becomes callous to their sin and uncaring of correcting. And so we want to warn the person early that sin, unchallenged, can destroy the soul. And I'm not saying that someone can lose their salvation over not repenting, but it's more showing that they were never saved to begin with. So we are warning them of the wrath of God that will come upon them. But the other aspect of of this warning is warning them of the natural consequences of their sin. So again, I said earlier that I warned my daughter not to touch the hot stove. In some cases, we warn them, if you continue down this road, this is what you can expect. So an easy example I could give is, if you continue to watch porn, this can lead to adultery. And so we warn them early of the consequences of dabbling with the, can I say, lighter sins or not as severe sins, of warning them before it gets deeper and deeper into their sin. And this actually goes into point three. The purpose of it is to save. And so in 1 Corinthians It says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved. We want people to be saved. We want people to actually be holy and living a life. We rather have someone's um, body be destroyed or them suffer the natural consequences of their sin than to spend an eternity in hell. Again, church discipline, when we looked at Matthew 18, was to win our brother back. We want to save our brother from hell. We want to save them from the consequences that their actions can, be, can bring. And so, the destruction of the flesh, that First Corinthians, is just talking about the natural consequences that will come. We can almost think of it as someone who does drugs, and the more severe their drugs gets, the more their body gets destroyed. We're almost thinking like, if you continue down this road, I'm just going to step back, let you do as your flesh wants, in hope that you will repent of your sin so that your soul may be saved on the day of judgment. We expose sin. We warn them of the consequences for the purpose of saving their soul. But there's another aspect of it. It is to protect the other members of the church. 
Here at this church, we have dealt with a lot of heresy over the years, where someone reads the Bible incorrectly, and they are interpreting in a way that we would say will damn the soul. That is heretical, it is opposite of the gospel, and we don't want the other members of the church to be influenced by this. So the example I could give is preterism. We've dealt with, I believe, two waves of it. And if you understand preterism correctly, there are some heretical things that if actually believed are heresy and will send people to hell. And so when people were believing that in the church, we did not want our other members in the church to be influenced by it, and so we protect them. The church is called to protect. And so this is the example in 1 Corinthians where it talks about a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If the sin goes unchallenged and isn't stopped, the false teaching could have easily spread and we could have easily had the church divided and had a church split where half the members are believing one thing, the other half are fighting for truth, and it can get very serious. And that is why our church corrects it very quickly, in fact. And so the purpose of church discipline is also to protect the other members of the church. Point number five, to preserve, to preserve the church's witness. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And you see how serious this sin is. A man is having a sexual relationship with either his mom or his mother-in-law. And even the world nowadays looks at that and says, that's disgusting and that's wrong. When the church is associated with that kind of behavior, it hurts the witness of our church and Christians in general. So when there is a lack of church discipline, sin can run rampant and it can hurt the witness of all believers. That first Corinthians passage it just just shows you people are tolerating that kind of sin. An unbelieving person would look at that church and say, that church is disgusting. I don't want to have anything to do with that kind of behavior. It hurts the witness of every Christian. We want people to live holy and distinct lives. We want them to be sanctified. And when a Christian lives a holy life, it is a great witness to the unbelieving world. When a Christian is in severe sin, all it does is hurt the witness of our church. So why do we practice church discipline? To expose sin before it grows more and more severe. We warn them of the consequences of their sin so that we may save their soul on the day of judgment to protect other members of the church from falling into the same sin or heresy. 
and to also preserve the witness of the church so that Christ may be made much of. So, the next natural question to ask is, what sins actually require church discipline? Yes, Sheila. Okay. I have looked at that verse before thinking that it could possibly mean that God will take you out of this world if you do not stop doing the thing that is damaging your witness, the testimony of the church, and all of that. Okay. So Sheila asked, um, she's wondering if where it says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh if that could include the person dying. Is that correct? If, if God will literally take you out on purpose because of this. Yes. I would say yes, that is a possibility, and we do have a few examples from Scripture with Ananias and Sapphira when they were in sin, but it also, in this very book, I believe in chapter... 11 when it's giving the Lord's Supper and it talks about people who are taking the Lord's Supper in an improper way. God does judge them for their sin. So, yes, God's discipline can lead to the death of that person and there are cases where that has happened in the Bible. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I was really have always wondered about that because this verse and two separate preachers preaching that message and me getting on an airplane that was the worst bumpy ride you've ever felt made me know if I did not stop the gambling that I was doing I truly believe God was going to take me out mm-hmm. and that was it for me after that I was done Yeah. it was very strong and I thought this is what's going to happen to me yes And that's the kindness of God warning you before the consequences could have led to death. Do we have any other questions? Okay, so what sins actually require church discipline? I could sum it up in just one word. Unrepentant unrepentant sin is the one that we dealt with. In one sense, we look at any sin as horrible. Now, we do understand that there are some more severe sins that we should deal with quicker and with more seriousness. There's a difference between the man who is watching porn And the man who is having an affair, we still call the person to repentance, but we will deal with it a lot more quicker and have a more serious attitude for the man who is having an affair. But no matter what, the sin that needs to be dealt with in church discipline is just a sin that is being that the person is unrepentant of. And again, the reason is, 
to expose sin before it festers into something more serious. And so let's go back to our definition of church discipline. Church discipline is when another Christian lovingly rebukes or corrects another Christian. All it is is someone correcting a brother, here's what the Bible says, here's what you're doing, repent, turn back to Jesus Christ. And so we deal with all the situations the same. We call them to repentance. And then we escalate it appropriately. And there are times where it might be a little bit more slower, depending on the circumstance, depending on the severity of it. But the only time we really need to continue to escalate in church discipline is when the person is unrepentant. I also have to talk about what true repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. It must be followed by action. A person can apologize and, quote unquote, repent all they want, but if their actions do not show it, we can't believe their words. And we have seen cases, even in this church, where the person kept repenting and then would fall into the exact same sin over and over and then we deal with it like you say that you're repentant but true repentance involves a change of action and your actions have yet to change and so an unrepentant sin also involves someone who isn't acting the way that they are called to act. And so it is the job of the individual and the church to actually see if this sin is unrepented of, which is actually where the step two comes of bringing two or three witnesses is very helpful because then you can have multiple people evaluating if this person's repentance actually genuine. They keep saying, I repent, but their actions are still the exact same. It would be like the drunkard says, I'm sorry, I will never drink again. And then the next night gets drunk. I'll never do it again. And then gets drunk again. We rightfully say, is this person serious? So what sins require church discipline? Just unrepentant sins. Do we have any questions on that? Yes, Wally. Do we um, differentiate between, like, is there a place where a person can be repentant, but there are still moments in which they're going to sin? Because, I mean, like, I mean, let's say some, maybe some lower view of sins. Like, let's say someone has angry outbursts, right? So they've, you know, they're fighting it, they're moving it, but they may, you may still see that come from time to time. Is there a discernment that's necessary to not be like, oh, you said you repented, but you did it, so we're going to escalate it again. Is there like a difference between that? Or? So Wally's asking if, how do we make a distinction for when a person says their story may actually be genuine, but keeps falling into the same sin, such as anger and outbursts? 
we do make a distinction, and that is where the job of the church is to actually evaluate it. An individual, I should just say a Christian, will continue to fall into sin for their whole lives. But what marks a true Christian is a willingness to actually work on getting their sin resolved and making it right and fighting sin. A Christian that isn't fighting sin, do we even call them a Christian? And so, yes, we do make a distinction. And in one sense, without, let's actually jump to one of the questions, how quickly should church um, discipline act? Just so I can answer that um, through that question. How quickly should a church act? Depends on the sin. Again, a man who's watching porn versus an affair, we act a lot more quickly with the affair. But with church discipline, with Matthew 18, where it says, first go to the brother by yourself, this doesn't necessarily mean you go to the brother by yourself, they don't repent, a few hours later you bring a few more people, they don't repent again, and then you go to the pastor, hey, we got to have a meeting this Sunday, this person's unrepentant. It is our brother at that point. It is a fellow Christian. We seek to come alongside this brother in love and compassion. And it may be that it will take a lot of work and a lot of time to correct the brother. It may take multiple steps of you going like, brother, you're still struggling with this. What can I do to actually help you fight this sin? What can we do? And this is where sometimes, yes, it does go to the next step. But in some cases, we might need to take it slow just with a particular set of circumstances. And this is where I can't answer every single situation. It's going to take discernment. It's going to take time to evaluate the situation. We as Christians should seek to be compassionate and loving the brother is in sin, and we must look at our own lives and recognize our own sin. First, we too easily fall into sin. Galatians 6 gives us warnings that when another brother is in sin, you who are spiritual should confront them, but it gives a warning. Don't fall into the same temptation. We recognize that in our own lives, this isn't something that we're immune to. We too can fall into the same sin. So we have compassion and sympathy with this brother. It depends on how hard-hearted the individual is. If the person is completely going to ignore all words of advice, it will escalate a lot quickly. Versus the brother who is struggling with sin, who may fight it, who may say, no, I'm not doing anything wrong, but whose heart is still soft. We are willing to work with the brother and move a lot slower. Brother Chris, do you have a question? Yeah, so when it comes to cross-examination and to initiate church discipline, the, is it based on self-examination where am I, do I have the right heart to do this or am I the one who, who's not ready because I may have a pride problem and that can escalate more because mm -hmm. I think probably one of the part is uh, I don't want to jump to conclusion but I want to get all the details to 
to see if the church discipline is the right uh, decision. Would that be right, though? Um, so Chris is asking first for like self-evaluation. How do we even know if you're the right person to do the church discipline? And in one sense, there are some scriptures that are relevant. First, a passage where it talks about when you go to your brother who has a speck in their eye, but you have a log in your own eye. Again, going back to the example if the man who's having an affair with his wife goes to the person who's watching porn, like, hey, you shouldn't do that, that brother can be like, uh, you're one to talk. So, yes, Chris, there is a rightful self-evaluation that someone should take. But again, we understand that church discipline is just one brother lovingly correcting another brother. Yeah, so Cora, um, she's making reference to the biblical counseling that our church just did recently, and she's saying it's a great blessing that there are some people being trained because they can help with that. But Cora, let me actually go a step farther um, and actually answer the question through who should perform church discipline? Every single Christian should perform church discipline because church discipline is just understood as one brother or sister in Christ lovingly rebuking another brother. And so it can just be a simple talk. Hey, brother, your words, they're tearing people down. You should have speech that's upbuilding. And that can just be, that could be church discipline right there. You just confront a brother, hey, your speech is wrong, correct it, and repent. And that could be all it is. Now we may move to next step if there isn't repentance, but who should perform church discipline? Every single Christian should be willing to perform church discipline because the purpose of church discipline is to restore a brother, to be made right with a brother. But we also want to have the brother grow in holiness and become more like Jesus Christ. So don't view church discipline as this very serious step-by-step process. View it as an act of love to help a brother or sister live a holy life. In fact, in one sense, my wife performs church discipline on me, I could say on a weekly basis, because she's constantly pointing out my sin and calling me to live a more holy life life. And that's what all our relationship with our brother and sister should be like. It should be a simple, hey brother, I encourage you to live more godly in your speech. Hey brother, I encourage you to live a more holy life when it comes to your purity. Hey brother, I know that you've been very selfish. I know you've been very prideful. And it's just a simple loving rebuke. And that's all church discipline is sometimes. It is a loving act. What is the job of a member of a church? 
It is speaking the truth in love to your brother, pleading with the person to repent. That's point number one. What is the job of a member? To speak the truth in love and plead with the person to repent. That's just the first step of Matthew 18. Correct them. We also need to take it to the Lord in prayer. Sometimes we need wisdom on how to handle the situation. There are certain situations where a brother is in sin can become very complicated and very confusing on how to deal with rightly. So point number two, we should pray. Pray that the Lord sanctifies his brother. Pray that the Lord gives us wisdom on how to handle it. Point number three, there comes a point where we need to give the information to our pastors. Again, don't start with the pastors. You don't need to go to one of the pastors every time a brother or sister is in sin and say, hey, this brother needs to be corrected. You're a church member. You correct them. Our pastors don't have the ability or time to correct sin every single time. But you as brothers and sisters, can lovingly correct them. But it does come to the point when the church needs to get involved, that the elders will need to get involved, and you pass the information along to them. The fourth job, if the person is unrepentant, even when it's brought to the church, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. This means you get to the point where your job is just to evangelize. You give them the gospel. Which is very much like step number one, where you speak the truth in love and plead with the person in sin to repent. So what is the job of a church member? Call them to repentance. Pray for them. Get the pastors involved if it's needed and the person is still unrepentant then it comes to the point where that person just needs to be evangelized. Can a church member avoid church discipline by withdrawing their membership? No, that's not how church discipline works. Someone can't just run away from from the church. We love our brothers and sisters so much that we don't tolerate sin, but we want to lovingly rebuke them and call them to repentance. Our job is to restore a brother. So if a brother runs away and tries to hide from the situation, we run after them. Our job is to love our brothers and sisters, and there are times where they want to avoid the situation But as God disciplines those he loves, we too chase after them. In the parables where it talks about God or the shepherd going after the one lost sheep, we should take that as encouragement. If one of our members tries running away, that this whole church is going to go out into the wilderness and look for that brother or sister and call them to repentance so that they may be restored. Why? Because we love the brother and sister. They are a Christian and they can't just claim, hey, I don't want, I don't want to be disciplined, I'm going to run away. We love them too much to allow that to happen.
How do we interact with someone who has been disciplined? 1 Corinthians 5 says, But now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swinder, and not to even eat with such a one. Yes, Brother Cedric. Uh, that would be if they were not repentant, if they had repentant, if there is church discipline and they repent, then the relationship is restored. Yeah, we'll talk about that in the next point. But essentially, if someone is unrepented of their sin and it gets to the final step of excommunication, we take that very seriously. And I'll continue, but Marty, do you have a comment or question? Yes, uh, when it talks about not even to eat with uh, that, that person, is that in the context of uh, fellowship and the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. or is that meaning that I don't invite them over for a barbecue to say, hey, listen, you know, I, I'd like to share with you Christ, and then mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what context that is, because yes. I mean, does that mean don't sit down the first time at work with somebody who's not an unbeliever? You know, how yeah. far is that? Uh, so, Marty is asking, how do we understand the phrase not to even eat with such a one? And to answer that, um, this is referring to a believer who has then gone through the church discipline process and is unrepentant. We don't uh, treat unbelievers like this, the people who need to be evangelized. So the unbelieving co-worker, we can still get a meal with them. This is talking about Um, where it says not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother who is in unrepentant sin. The not to eat um, actually can reference the Lord's Supper. They are not to partake in the Lord's Supper. But this is really referring to the close communion and fellowship that a church has with one another. This person has shown to, um, through their actions, to essentially be an unbeliever. And so as I talked earlier about them leaving the circle of blessing, they're going to be treated differently. And they're not going to be as closely knit in the church. So let me kind of give an example. My closest friends are always going to be Christians. My closest friends will not be unbelievers because we have a difference of worldview and what is our ultimate love. And so with an, with an unbeliever, we just don't love Christ. They don't love Christ as a Christian does. And so we naturally won't have as tight as fellowship as we would a believer. And that's kind of what it's referring to. It's also talking about if you even see the person, not to just walk away and to ignore them, but we love them so much to, to actually acknowledge that no, our relationship is different because you are unrepentant and we kind of treat the situation differently. We treat them like an unbeliever where they need to be evangelized. Um, and based on the sake of time, I don't have as much time I would love to fully hash that out, but they are an unbeliever. We do not treat them like they are a Christian, 
but we still evangelize to them and we still pray for them. And then I'll make one last comment. What happens when we have a person who does repent of their sin after being excommunicated? We invite them back into the church. We have fellowship with them and a relationship is restored. We treat them like nothing ever happened in terms of our relationship status and we seek to make everything right. We don't ostracize them. We don't push them away. We love them. And 2 Corinthians talked about a situation where a brother was in sin, was unrepentant, and then repented. And Paul saying, don't let the person have any more sorrow. Restore them. Invite them back. Love them. When a person repents, we invite them back, and a relationship is restored. Um, just based on the sake of time, um, if you have any questions, you can come up to me afterwards, but let me pray for us right now. Oh Lord God, I thank you for just the wisdom that the word has. God, I pray that this church will be one who practice church discipline in love. And God, I pray that we might be quick to correct a brother in love when we see sin because we love them so much. God, help us to be wise in the tough situations and give us wisdom where it's needed. And God, I pray that this church will be a holy church. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.